I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today we're talking about what happens when the New Yorker magazine does a deep dive on live golf. My guest today is Zach Helfand, who's a writer and editor at the New Yorker, and for the past few months, he's been reporting a big feature story on the conflict between the Saudi-backed live circuit and the PGA Tour. That piece will appear in the next edition of the magazine and was published online earlier this week under the catchy title, Will the Saudis and Donald Trump Save Golf or Wreck It? Now, since it's part of my job to follow golf news, I didn't really expect to learn anything new from this article, but I actually did. Zach does some really fresh reporting here, even getting a sit-down interview with Majed al Sorer, who doesn't do much media and is one of Liv's most important decision makers. So I thought it would be good to bring Zach on the podcast and talk about why The New Yorker got interested in Liv and what he, as a relative outsider to golf media, made of it all. To keep up with The Fried Egg, including our commentary on the battle for professional golf, you can subscribe to our newsletter at thefriedegg.com. So Zach, you are the editor of The New Yorker's Talk of the Town section, right? Is that, is that kind of what you're mainly doing at the magazine right now? Yeah, so I'm I'm one of the editors. So it's me, me and my boss Susan. That's my day job. I, I edit Talk of the Town, and it's the it's the section of short pieces that appears toward the front of the magazine. I think people who've seen the New Yorker will be familiar with it. Often very charming, sometimes a little hard to figure out, uh, and, and that's that's part of the uh, the mystery and allure of them. So you are not a golf reporter. I just want to make that very clear. That's not your full time job, but you became a golf reporter to uh, to do this article. But my understanding is that you have a background in sports reporting. So maybe you could tell me about that. What did you what did you write about previously? I, I have been a temporary golf reporter on a few occasions. Uh, I'm definitely not a full time golf reporter. And I think that was to my advantage. Uh, you get kind of the aliens view of the world um, that I think people seem to have enjoyed Um my first job was at the LA Times. I was a sports reporter there, mainly uh, USC and UCLA football, basketball, a little bit of Dodgers, um, and a little bit of this and that uh, here and there. Before I was in LA, uh, when I was you know interning at various newspapers, I covered a couple golf tournaments here and there. So I, I did one FedEx Cup event in New Jersey, uh, which I think might be the only golf tournament ever interrupted by a, an earthquake and a tornado. There was a mini earthquake. <laughs> which interrupted, I think, Jim Furyk's press conference. Um, <laughs> and I, that's why I remember that. And then I did a U.S. Open at Marion uh, when I was an intern at the Philly Inquirer. And that was my only golf experience other than playing once or twice a year myself. That That's it. So the Justin Rose U.S. Open is, is what you covered when you were at the Philly Inquirer? Exactly. Yeah. And I was mainly the gopher, just getting quotes and running them back to the, to the actual reporters. Well, so I wanted to establish that because... You know, although you have covered some golf tournaments, although you certainly know enough to have reported this story, you do come into it as something of an outsider, which, as you alluded to, can be really, really useful 
with a subject like this that golf reporters live every single day and kind of may end up taking a too narrow a view of. And so it's really useful to to come in from the outside. Did did you find that as you were starting to report this story? Did you see that as kind of a strength from the from the get-go? I think it helped me in two ways. The first being this fresh view of it. Um, there are things that if you're a golf reporter there just covering the beat, you probably get numb to. There there are things that amused me. Uh, things that people would say, um, and just uh, one of the things is just kind of the self-regard that, that golfers have. It's, you know, they kind of, I think you make a lot of money and hey, you give money to charity and you think you, all of a sudden you're like this great pillar of the community and all you do is just hit a golf ball and, and <laughs> they repeat it so much that it, it, I think if you, you're there every day, it just becomes numb. But that was one of the things that stuck out to me. It was just kind of the self-regard. And I think it was that the, the, the fresh view helped. Also, the, the second thing is I... I came away. I, I I wanted to be fair. Uh, I wanted to you know take the merits of of examine the merits of both sides, but I also wanted to be to to examine the 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 ways in which both sides are being ridiculous. Uh, and when I needed to criticize, uh, it's easier to criticize when you then don't have to cover the beat every day, and you have to you know try to get information uh from people the next day hey can you you know what's going on with this story uh and they don't want to tell you because maybe they didn't like the thing you wrote uh so <laughs> you you feel like you could really be free to, to to let it rip so in other words you're you're not as worried about burning sources when you're when you're just kind of dropping in and writing one feature piece exactly if 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 they told me you know you'll never write another golf story in your life i'd say all right well that's 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 okay yeah. Oh, well, so I, I wanted to get an idea of what made you interested and what made the New Yorker interested in this story in particular. I, you know, as, as somebody who's who's in the golf world every day, I, I find myself a, a little bemused by the interest in live. You know, I get asked about it at parties now, you know, just like people, as soon as they <laughs> hear that I work in golf, they're going to ask me about live. And so this story really has kind of spread its tentacles out to places that I wouldn't necessarily expect. And although the New Yorker has done some fantastic golf journalism before, especially by David Owen and, and others, usually the New Yorker is not doing huge pieces on golf unless it's about the masters or something like that so what was fascinating about this story to you and you know what made you believe that you could find something kind of new about it in in reporting to me it was this relatively unimportant thing it's a relatively trivial thing at the end of the day it's just golf uh, we like it i like i like watching um and i I want it to be a good product to watch. But at the end of the day, there are more important things going on in the world. So it was this relatively trivial thing that just touched on so many different, maybe more important or more existential problems or issues in the world. There's the geopolitics with the Saudis. Um, there's the identity politics and I, you know uh, the, the culture wars um, that you kind of saw playing out between the tour and Liv. Um, there is the question of morality and uh, when do you sell out and when do you not? I, you know, I, I thought that's a really interesting question. I, I didn't feel particularly finger waggy 
toward the live guys, I, I kind of viewed it as, yeah, I think everyone's going to, everyone's going to have a price. And if I was offered a hundred million dollars to go work for live tomorrow, you know, I think anyone would have to think about it. So it was this small, uh, trivial thing that it was, could be amusing, um, but it touched on so many different things in, in amusing ways. And then also, I mean, the thing that drew me in was, was the Mickelson quote initially is you just don't see people giving quotes like that. You know, the, the scary motherfuckers, uh, the, you don't see quotes like that. And then the backlash, people were very honest. It was, it was like this excuse for everyone to kind of drop the, 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 the facade or drop the, the walls uh, a little bit and, and to just kind of say what they were feeling. And you don't see, especially in sports, you don't see that that often. And it was, it was, it was amusing and refreshing in a lot of ways to me. Yeah, it was, it was bizarre is what it was. I couldn't quite believe my eyes when that article by Alan Shipnook with those quotes from Phil Mickelson came out in February. Was that the first time that you had heard about Liv? Th those of us in the, in the golf world had been thinking about this since the emergence of the idea of the premier golf league in early 2020. And we were aware early on that the Saudis were involved in that. And so was. February 2022 with those Phil Mickelson quotes the first time that you really stood up and, and took notice of of what was happening more or less yeah I think I had heard the term like Saudi Golf League or whatever they were calling it at, in different yeah. iterations Super so Golf League Golf SGL League. yeah yeah SGL um I I think that had crossed like my Twitter feed or you know I'd heard it on a sports talk radio or something like that but hadn't it just kind of had rolled off because uh, there's nothing to grab onto, at least for me, I, I didn't. It didn't didn't you know affect me all that much. Uh, but the Mickelson quote um, and that article from from Shipnuck was the first time that I'd really not only like passively consumed it, but like actively was like, oh, what is what is this thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think you're you're with a lot of people there. But then by August, you find yourself at the Tour Championship, the uh, final event of the PGA Tour season. Uh, tell me what it was like uh, reporting at that event. Uh, you got some really good quotes from like Rory McIlroy, Max Homa. And so clearly you were well prepared to operate in that environment. But what did you find uh, surprising or, or notable or, or any anything else about being at that event and observing? I have to say the the tour is a very pleasant place to report. You've got the media tent, you got food all ready for you. Uh, you know, some, in some cases, there's like beers in the fridge, um, which is unusual for, for covering sports and covering anything, really. Um, and then you're out on this nice golf course and people are generally friendly and they're helpful. So it was it was nice. I, I, I um, you know, re reporting golf is a lot like reporting baseball in that you're kind of just standing around for hours on end. And then occasionally, you know, you're standing around with people who are practicing and also kind of standing around themselves. And then you just kind of start talking. Um, it helped, I think, that, you know, being able to say you work at The New Yorker always helps people recognize it, even if they don't read it um, and kind of have some level of respect for it, maybe, um, or at least just think, hey, this is a thing I've heard of. Uh, so people are generally willing to to talk and engage. And then it's just kind of the matter of, of finding smart people uh, or funny people. Uh, Max Homa, uh, smart and funny. Rory McIlroy is a smart guy, very, you know, very well researched on on this, on the tour versus live. I really knows his stuff very well. So the, the tour is easy to report. Live, on the other hand, 
there were a lot of barriers. Uh, I didn't get credentialed for my first event in in uh, Bedminster at Trump National. So they, they ended up giving me a ticket for free, which saved me, I think, $3 because they were reselling for a dollar on StubHub. <laughs> uh, so I just had a regular general ticket and, and walked around the grounds. Uh, and it was very hard to talk to golfers. Um, no one would really want to talk. They're all being kind of cagey, which I understood, um, but couldn't really get any interviews set up. Uh, and then I, I read the story in the Wall Street Journal that a lot of these guys, or maybe all of them, have clauses in their contract where they have to get interviews approved uh, by by the live mothership, so to speak. So the tour was very easy. The tour was, you know, the the usual kind of American sports model. It's like, you know, we're open. Go go talk to who you want to talk to. And live was very much, you know, kind of top down controlled. No, I, I found the same thing when I covered the Live Portland event. And we can talk a little bit more about Bedminster. I want to get there. But at the Tour Championship, what was the impression that you picked up about the nature of the conflict between PGA Tour loyalists and the guys who had jumped to Live? Uh, there's a variety of views. But generally, I think that there's kind of two camps. The, the one camp that is maybe... Uh, it's a mix of people who are maybe interested in live and uh, uh, those people and also the people who are not interested in live, but understand why people are going. Oh, you talk like Billy Horschel. He's, there's a lot, not a lot of ill will um, from him to a lot of live golfers. And they understand, you know, you want to go get money. That's that's fine. I'd rather stay here. But, you know, that's an understandable choice. And then there's the people who who feel and I think that there's it's they'll never say this, but it's a mix of people who are maybe jealous or a mix of people who maybe feel spurned or wanted the deal or are still chasing a deal and having a tough time um, who are more of the hardliners who are really kind of pissed off about this. Uh, so I think there's 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 kind of those two camps, the one people who are like, you know, I don't like the way that a lot of people have gone about it. I don't like you suing us. Uh, and then there's the other people who are like, these people are horrible and uh, and I hate them. <laughs> What's the sense that you picked up from Roy McElroy about where he is in relation to those two groups? Rory's interesting. Um, he plays it kind of close to the vest. Um, he, he, maybe he's a little bit of a, I would say he's more of the first group um, where I think he understands the motivations of a lot of these people. And I think that he really resents the fact that um, this is affecting his tour which he really likes i found and it's it's hard to tell but i found that he was one of the people who and probably because he would i think he would admit this probably because he has a lot of money to begin with and he has a lot of sponsorships and he's spending a lot of money on the tour um he is less motivated by money than i think a lot of people um and i think he really does genuinely love the tour and this is what he dreamed of and he wants to protect the thing that he dreamed of and there are a few people like that uh, a lot of people are just motivated simply by the money uh, or by resentment. Um, but I, I, so I think he resents in, in a way that they're messing up his tour. But I, I don't think that he really hates a lot of the people that went. But one of the things that he told me, and this didn't make it in the piece, is we're talking about how this thing might end. Um, and he was like, there has to be some sort of punishment uh, to people who come back. Otherwise, you know, if, if, if live folds or some people want to defect back. He, he he feels like everyone could have just gone. He could have just gone and got in, you know, a hundred something million dollars and then come back with no punishment. He he still feels like, you know, there's got to be some sort of, you know, penance paid by these golf guys. So I think there's a little bit of a mix. Like it's, 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 it's personal for him. 
even if I think he understands on an intellectual level that I, uh, you know, these guys are allowed to go get money and that's fine. Yeah. I, Rory is such a fascinating figure in all this because he obviously is very smart. And I think he's thinking of all of this pretty strategically. Um, but, uh, but he has a lot of power, right? He's, he's almost sort of like a, a shadow commissioner in a way, because if he, if he wants something, then Jay Monahan, the PGA tours commissioner is not really in that strong of a position to say no to him. Um, and so, uh, you know, getting, getting Roy's take on things is, is always, uh, really interesting and important. So, uh, you went to Trump Bedminster. So you were not credentialed at this event. The New Yorker sent in a credential application and was rejected by, by live golf. Do I have that? Do I have that right? Yes. And I, I have, I've never been rejected in a credential application for a sporting <laughs> event. Ever, I don't think. That's uh, the, crazy. The though. one tournament, the FedEx Cup tournament I covered uh, in New Jersey was at Plainfield Country Club. And I was an intern at the Trentonian, which is like a small, very small tabloid. As that's my freshman year of college, uh, very small tabloid in New Jersey. And the PGA was like, yeah, sure, come and spend all week there. Uh, so it was unusual. Yeah. Okay. That's, that, that is really interesting to me. I think we, we sent in a credential application for the fried egg and, and got approved maybe 30 minutes later. I'm not sure there's necessarily a rhyme or reason to, <laughs> to who they're letting in and, and who they're trying to keep out. So you were just there. They ended up giving you a free ticket. You were just there essentially as a fan. I'm not sure that fans, that, that reporters at live events have meaningfully more access to players than, than fans do in the end. But what was your experience like at Bedminster? It was it was it was bizarre. It was a weird experience. Um, I, I would describe it as kind of like a MAGA rally with some golf mixed in. It, it, that that was the crowd. I, I talked to one woman who said I w- I wouldn't be able to tell my friends and clients um, that I was here. She lived in Florida, uh, so she had a mix of Republican and Democrat friends. She said I wouldn't be able to tell friends and clients that I was here, or else a lot of my clients would not talk to me ever again. <laughs> Um, because it was, it was, it was basically a a Trump rally. Um, there was also a mix of like kind of curious bro types. The the way I describe this to friends is the guys that kind of, you know, they wear their, the, the, like the flat brim hats, like kind of on a tilt, like on their forehead and kind of like rest on top of their forehead. I, I, I kind of connect it to, to the lax bros that I grew up with. I grew up not far away. Um, so I kind of understood the archetype. Uh, and, and I was not, I was myself was not too far off from the archetype at some points in my life. Uh, but it was like, you know, it, it was, I think it was like the curious bro types and then like the hardcore MAGA people. There were a lot of jokes about Hillary, a lot of jokes about Biden, a lot of let's go Brandon chance. And then Trump himself gave a speech. Um, he, he, as the players were coming through the 16th tee box, which is this par three right by the clubhouse, he, he just got a microphone and started giving a little speech and then had a guy saying, God bless America as the golfers were like continuing to play. Um, so it was, it was almost like people forgot that there was golf going on and people just kind of flocked to this area where Trump was with Tucker Carlson and with Marjorie Taylor green, uh, and, and that whole cast of characters, people just flocked to just go, go see them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so beyond the absurdity of this scene, and it is completely absurd to think that a golf event could take on the, you know, character of a, of a political rally, but that is what happened here. This indicates something, I think, about the way that the live versus PGA tour conflict has become absorbed into the larger culture wars. 
right? And I, I've been trying to figure this out because it doesn't map on perfectly. You know, the PGA Tour is not woke <laughs> as, as much as people <laughs> want to portray it as that in opposition to uh, Live Golf's sort of resistance. But there is something like that there. There is something political about this conflict. And I, I was wondering if you ever got to a point where you could explain that to yourself. You know, what? how does this whole thing intersect with the culture wars? I, I, I think the, the best way I could break it down is that the uh, live seems to attract the uh, a lot of people that, that grew up with with not as much money or resources. Um, so people who were maybe grew up a little bit more blue collar um, or people who just and this is this is, I think, where the culture politics comes into it. There's some people who grew up with, you know, plenty of money, but identify kind of with like the white working class um, in some ways. And the people who more strongly associated, I think, with those groups um, also tended to be more Trump Republicans rather than mainline Republicans. They tended to go to live. Now, that's that's the golfers. And I also think that's that's the viewers. I think the kind of the distrust of elites is is how I would classify the like main appeal. Um, if, you know, if you distrust the elites, the PGA Tour is like it represents the elites in, in a lot of ways. Um, and the the people I met, even the fans who who kind of had that suspicion or, or resentment toward the elites, uh, flocked toward live more. Not that there are a ton of live fans, but you, you'd meet people who were pro live uh, at these tournaments. And the PGA is more for like the Mitt Romney kind of mainline Republicans. There are not a lot of Democrats, so I'm kind of leaving them out of this conversation. There are not a lot of Democrats uh, <laughs> on the tour, um, and, and I think. There's some people that view it, you know, those people have are a little bit more principled and and think that some things are more important than money. There's other people that say they grew up wealthier and so have the privilege and and, and have the wherewithal to be able to say, oh, I don't need this money. I can stick with my principles because I have plenty of money already. Um, so I think that's kind of how it broke down. Uh, Elizabeth Nelson, who's a golf writer, she writes for The Ringer. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, the, the paranoid uh, style also, on on Twitter. Yeah, indie rocker. And she's she's great. Yeah, multi talented rocker, rock critic. She has a, a day job also. I don't know how she has the time. Uh, but the way she broke it down was um, that it live kind of embodies Trumpism in a lot of ways, in the way they kind of step over boundaries and things like that. Um, and uh, the PGA Tour kind of fashions itself, or maybe thinks of itself as like Abraham Lincoln. Uh, but the way she put it is 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 the PGA Tour is more like Mitch McConnell. Uh, mm. that, you know, we're fine with elite of, elitist destructive behavior as long as we're able to do it. But the minute it starts being bad for business is the minute we say, whoa, 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 we don't we don't love this. Yeah. And I, I want to make clear that that what you're laying out here is a very general map. I don't think your article implies that every person who goes to a live event is a is a MAGA Republican or or that all of this is, a, you know, perfectly predictive of a person's political affiliation. But there is an undeniable tenor. <laughs> to how live puts itself out in the world that you know obviously Donald Trump himself has found it appealing and you know one question that's often been on my mind aside from again the the absurdity and and the ridiculousness of of this whole thing is that i wonder what this how this will play out as a strategic choice for live if associating itself with Trump and 
Marjorie Taylor Greene and Tucker Carlson at this particular event, but also for other events and um, and and kind of in general, whether that's going to be a good strategic choice for Liv or whether you think maybe Liv has kind of painted itself into a corner here. This was one of the things that Rory McElroy was asking me actually was um, about the the fans that Liv was attracting um, and kind of what the general vibe around it was. I, I think Rory thinks and uh, a lot of people might think and reasonably that they are turning off half of their potential viewership. Um, if half the country won't watch a product because you're associated with Trump, uh, that puts you behind the eight ball, especially when you're already struggling to attract viewers. Um, I think on the flip side, there's also this model that we've seen uh, a lot in media with podcasters uh, on, on the right. Um, and media figures on the right, where it's fine to turn off half the country. And in fact, that's that's actually to your advantage because it activates the other half of the country. And people that might not watch golf at all might now watch you because they associate you with Trump and they like Trump. Um, so I could see it going both ways. I do think that Liv was a little bit surprised by how politicized the event was. So I don't know that this is a, uh, in, in, I don't know that it's an intentional strategy. I, I just got the sense that they thought it was going to be a little bit more about the golf and less about Trump um, than it was, which is crazy because this is what Trump does. Uh, he becomes the center of attention and that's his main skill and talent uh, is kind of drawing all the attention to himself. Um, so if they were caught off guard, uh, I think that, that was a miscalculation. Yeah. Yeah. A little naive. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, it's it's legitimately up in the air as to which direction Liv is going to go next year and the years after that, whether they're going to try to strike a less controversial pose. Um, because, you know, wh- whether that means anything for their uh, affiliation with Trump, I don't know. But um, certainly when it comes to Greg Norman, uh, who is currently the, the CEO of, of Live Golf, it seems like rumor has it that power players within live are starting to look around for other options for leaders who might be somewhat less willing to fight in public, right? And and somewhat more under control and disciplined than Greg Norman has traditionally been. And so I wonder whether Liv is is going to try to kind of smooth out its public stance a little bit and and be somewhat less bellicose in the future. There's been this kind of like normanology where people are trying to figure out how the strategy has shifted or not shifted. Uh, and now he's trying to play nice and now he's going a little a little more bellicose. And what's the chess move? I don't know that there is. Like, it seems to just kind of like, you know, it varies day to day. If he's angry about something, he's going to be angry about something. And I don't know that there's a deeper strategy behind that. Um, and if there is, it certainly doesn't seem to be working because it's hard to tell even what the, the strategy is because it, it shifts a lot in terms of, we're trying to play nice and, and the PJ tour is blackballing us, but we're, we're still trying to engage with them and now they're horrible and we're suing them. And it's just, you know, it seems to be kind of all over the place. I don't have any reporting on, on Norman's status within live. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if the strategy from the Saudi executives from the outset was Norman is a polarizing figure and we need someone who's kind of not afraid to take on the establishment and also take a lot of the, the, the bullets um, as Norman has done, he's he's been the face of this, even though he is the he's the CEO, but he still is answering to, uh, in particular, uh, Majid Al Soror and, and Yasser Al Rumayan, 
who are the two Saudi executives that are kind of this is their remit. Um, and they are certainly part of the decision making here. Um, but you, you just hear like this is Norman's grand plan uh, when really he was just hired on as CEO. So I think if there was a strategy there, it may have been to hire someone who's a little bit more bellicose like Norman. And then as it establishes itself and as you get through the turbulent early year or two, you might turn to someone who's a little bit more of a of a stable, uh, more traditional CEO type. Right. Yeah. And, and if there's any strategy in live golf, it certainly must be coming from the Saudi executives that you mentioned rather than Greg Norman, who, who's not necessarily known for his uh, calculating strategic mind. He's, <laughs> he's a man who's a little more driven by emotion. But speaking of those executives, one of the major gets in your piece was a sit down interview with Majid Alsor, uh, who is the CEO of the Saudi Golf Federation. Uh, so first of all, I mean, a lot of listeners might not be familiar with Alsor or, or, you know, how powerful he is, how important he is. So could you just set up what his role is and how he's connected to other powerful people associated with Liv? Okay, so to zoom all the way out, basically at the top of, of the Saudi Arabian government, the, the royal family is, is Mohammed bin Salman, who's the crown prince, effectively wields absolute power. Uh, his father's the king, uh, but he, he is able to do most of what he wants within the country. So that's that's MBS is at the top. Um, within his circle of close advisors is a guy named Yasser al-Rumayan. Um, and he's the guy who runs the the Saudi Wealth Fund, uh, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, which um, funds live. So he's the one ultimately who's, you know, the buck stops there essentially at Rumayan in terms of, of live. He's not running all of the day-to-day -day stuff because he's got a big remit. He's also the chairman of Aramco, which I think is still the biggest company in the world. But uh, he, he's he's the the first big name is Yasser al-Rumayan. Um, now, he appointed, or under his tenure, um, a high school friend of his uh, named Majid al-Soror, um, who was a former soccer player turned businessman. He lives in the U.S., um, he was appointed the head of the Saudi Gulf Federations. Um, so he's in charge of the sport, essentially, um, within the country. That means investments in, in new golf courses, and they're building tons of golf courses. Uh, and, and he also was the one who had been looking for investments like Liv. Um, so really, those are the two main players, is uh, Al Soror, who I talked to, and um, Yasser Al Rumayan, um, who is his boss. He refers to him as the boss. Um, and those are the two main players here. So there's kind of three, you know, two degrees of separation between Soror to Rumayan to MBS. Got it. Okay. Now, how did you end up getting to talk to Al Soror? Because he, he hasn't given many interviews to national media. So I was at Liv's event in, uh, it's called Live Liv Boston. Uh, mm -hmm. it's really, uh, like an hour Maybe 40, yeah. 40 it, it was it was live live Bolton, <laughs> live Bolton. Yeah, exactly. Uh, at the international in Bolton, and um, I had just uh, was hanging around all week. Um, was at the pro am, and the guy announcing uh, all the names at the pro am was this guy named Frank McNamara. Um, just a very friendly, uh, talkative guy, and we had just kind of been hanging around uh, each other for for a few days, Frank and I, and it was kind of a mover and shaker type, uh, knows everyone, uh, knows how to get whatever he needs to get in any, in any moment. He carried a clipboard around to kind of seem official so he could just go wherever he wanted. Um, and was helping out in a volunteer capacity. 
I had been with him. I think this was on the the second round, the morning of the second round. Um, and there's me and a couple of people hanging around. And he said, oh, I'll be right back. There's someone I want to introduce you guys to. And he brought over Majid. Um, and uh, one of the first things Majid said to us is, you know, they, they, I'm the guy that they call the scary motherfucker. Uh, kind of in the tone of like, can you believe that? Because, you know, even when you talk to a person, it's just a person. Uh, and he's a you know pretty nice, friendly guy uh, when you interact with him. Um, so he kind of said, you know, can you believe this? They called me a scary motherfucker. And we started walking up the first the first hole together. Um, and I introduced who I was. I said, I'm with the New Yorker. I said, I would have been wanting to talk to you or or, or he refers to uh, Arumayan as his excellency. has been wanting to talk to you or, or his excellency. Um, for a long time and uh, you know i'd love to ask you about live and uh he he said you know he said okay we, we started talking um and we walked a couple holes together and uh ended up going to one of the, the private suites um with him and talking with him for uh some length or talking with him at some length um so it was we just kind of met him more <laughs> impromptu uh and and ended up speaking for a while well, first of all, let me just get a sense of of how he presents himself because it's uh, you know seeing pictures of him, he uh, there, there's a persona there. So what what would you how would you describe that persona? Uh, appearance wise, he's he's very fit. Uh, he, he's a former soccer player, um, and uh, you know got big arms and and is uh, you know seems to be in, in good shape. He loves wearing aviators. Um, when I met him, I think he was wearing pink pants um you know dresses in the typical golf fashion um and uh he's a businessman so he 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 he's run a, a lot of businesses in the u.s um and elsewhere and um speaks kind of at that language he kind of views himself as a businessman in the business world and and that's how he frames a lot of his conversations he did say a number of really memorable things to you, including that introduction where he essentially quoted Phil Mickelson, but didn't attribute the the scary motherfucker quote to Phil Mickelson. Um, he goes on to tell you, we don't kill gays. I'll just tell you that. Um, and there's a great little kind of fact check uh, of that parenthetically in, in the piece. But uh, th- this was, you know, he, he was very blunt with you. One of the things that he said was, if the majors decide not to have our players play, I will celebrate. I will create my own majors for my players. So when he said this, was he being like really genuine or do you think this was sort of a pose? That's an interesting question. Uh, I, I think I think in some ways it's posturing. You know, it's a little bit of, of uh, it's a negotiating tactic in a lot of ways. Um, I, I think, uh, and this is just my opinion, I, I think the ideal outcome is that the live guys are allowed to play in majors and then end up winning some majors and i think that's what live would and maybe should want uh, above all uh but he he also was was when we were speaking about this was was viewing it kind of from a businessman sense and he was also gaming out you know if i were the the tour and i was the commissioner here's how i would handle the majors because the tour doesn't get any revenue from the majors yet all the players are the ones that are playing in the majors so he was kind of gaming this out from a, a business perspective, um, and the 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 Saudis, are the the wealth fund is they're they're very long term investors. Um, so uh, I think if had anyone else made that statement, people would have said, okay, sure, yeah, you're going to create your own major. No, you're not. You you kind of have to take with, with at least a little bit of seriousness the idea coming from 
from people associated with the wealth fund um, because they they their time horizons are very long and they have enough capital to if they wanted to start to create events running opposite the majors um, that they're calling their own majors and they understand that we wouldn't have the same cachet at least in the short term but I think they think in the long term if we get the best players um, then our events are going to become de facto majors um, because we we have the best players playing them. Hey, just cutting in here real quick. A couple of hours after Zach and I recorded our conversation, Golf Saudi released a statement from Majid al Sorer that said, in part, the story wrongfully expressed and misrepresented my views. And he's talking about his views on the majors. Now, I should mention that the article doesn't represent Sorer's views on the majors one way or another. It just quotes him. And Sorer is not saying that he was misquoted. So it seems like this is damage control, but I thought I'd mention it because I didn't get a chance to ask Zach about it. If this statement had come out before the podcast, I certainly would have brought it up. Just wanted to put that out there. All right. That's it. Absolutely. I I mean, I think that one thing that people who are in the traditional golf world have a hard time doing is imagining a world five years from now or 10 years from now when Liv might very well have most of the best golfers in the world. And, you know, right now they have a lot of really great golfers, but some of them are a bit over the hill and they don't have some of the key players on the PGA Tour who are really in form right now. But that might not be the case in five to 10 years. And so how does everything change then if Liv really kind of owns most of the best male professional golfers in the world? You know, if they create their own majors and and the players have to play in those, then uh, my goodness, that 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 would be something pretty significant, right? Yeah, I, I think the possibility right now looks fairly remote. There's just not enough revenue coming in to sustain this. Um, and and the going rate for the top golfers right now is is so high that I, I don't know that even the Saudis would want to stomach it. Um, I think what people have to remember is that this is they're investing two billion dollars or more, um, and that is a huge amount of money. Um, uh, certainly in the context of the golf world, but this is not a major strategic uh, enterprise for the Saudis generally. Um, the people within the Saudi government who are making other financial decisions know about this, um, but it, to them, it's kind of a small thing. Um, the the wealth fund right now uh, has more than $600 billion in assets, and they're hoping to grow it uh, into the trillions uh, very soon. Um, so $2 billion is not a huge amount. And if if they're going to have to pay $150 to $200 million or more um, to get the top players, um, I, I just think that becomes so expensive that they might not even want to pay it. Now, if they do get the, the top players, you're, you're right. I think the people in, in within the tour uh, view this as kind of an existential battle. Um, if you talk to Davis Love, um, he'll tell you that uh, Liv says it wants to coexist, um, but really, if they get the top players, then that kind of turns the tour into just a minor league, a feeder system. That okay, you've developed some good talent, and now we're going to pay him and pick him off. Um, so they do kind of view this as as you know, this is life or death. That if Liv mm-hmm. does get the top players, then I think they realize that the tour, as as we know it, kind of ceases to exist. 
Yeah, but your point that that possibility is remote partly because Liv is such a small thing in the general picture of the uh, of Saudi Arabia's strategy in the world is is well taken. Um, you know that that <laughs> Liv Golf was sort of lightly formed. You know, it, it, in your article you mentioned that it's not even super clear how much this was communicated to MBS himself, though he certainly would have had to at some point engage with the idea and sign off on it. But if it was so easy to kind of form this uh, under the umbrella of the public investment fund, then surely it would also be easy just to dissolve it. Uh, and so that's a, that's a looming possibility here as well, and, and perhaps the, the fantasy outcome for, uh, for PGA Tour people. Um, now, I want to get to this uh, strategic, this political question of sports washing. You've already said that you're skeptical of this. You quote a couple of very serious experts in your article, including David Schenker, the assistant secretary of state for Near Eastern Affairs, and Joseph Westfall, U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia, uh, formerly both both our former positions, the ones that I mentioned, and they too are, you know, think that sports washing, that term doesn't really represent what Saudi Arabia is doing here. Uh, so why don't you tell me why you're suspicious of that interpretation and what you think is really going on here? Well, so I think if you just look at this from a bigger picture perspective, um, they're spending $2 billion on this. And you could you could buy a pretty serious advertising traditional advertising campaign uh, for for two billion dollars. Uh, it just seems like a, a very roundabout way if you wanted to improve your your reputation. Uh, it seems like a roundabout way. There are more efficient ways to do it. And as a result of live, people are talking more about uh, Khashoggi and about um, even Saudi Arabia's role uh, in in 9-11. Uh, which they weren't talking about at all before. Um, so I think if you were looking at it as kind of a reputational game, uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't be worth anything right now. Uh, but certainly there are more effective ways to improve one's reputation if you wanted to. Um, but if if you talk to people who are more insidery, people who who communicate with MES, um, they'll tell you that he and the royal family generally has kind of given up on trying to improve their reputation personally. Um, that they, they've realized that the West is never going to love them um, for a number of reasons, um, and they are just not so naive that they could fix their reputation um, in, in any shorter, medium-term length of time. Um, and now, what, what, I, what, uh, what people like Shanker um, and others will tell you is, is that um, the... Saudis right now are, are kind of in this rivalry um, with the Emiratis um, and with Dubai. Um, Saudi Arabia is trying very rapidly to diversify their economy. They've for a long time been very reliant on oil, uh, almost totally reliant on oil revenues, um, and realized that the days of relying on oil revenues are numbered. Um, so they are very rapidly trying to diversify and modernize their economy, and they're trying to develop all these new sectors. Um, one of the things MBS is, is very uh, pays a lot of attention to is the fact that a lot of young wealthy Saudis uh, end up leaving the country if they want to go on vacation, um, if they want to get medical care, um, if they want certain jobs. Uh, Western tourists, when they come to the Middle East, uh, or Western businessmen, when they come to the Middle East, they go to places like Dubai. Um, they don't come to Saudi Arabia. So they're trying to develop Saudi business, and they're trying to develop Saudi tourism. And one of the 
big groups of people that they want to attract um, is Westy, wealthy Westerners. And one thing that they know appeals to wealthy Westerners is golf. Um, so it's it's kind of, you know, there's this question of what is sports washing and what's not. Um, but I, I don't view this as a reputation laundering game for MBS. I view this as kind of like an advertising marketing vehicle for Saudi Arabia to say, hey, we you don't think of us as a golf destination because we're, we're mostly desert. We're very water scarce um, and there's traditionally not a lot to do in the country. Uh, but actually, we're, we're pumping a lot of money into the golf sector um, and people start associating Saudi Arabia with golf. Um, and that, I think, from a strategic aim is what Saudi Arabia is is after, is they're trying to position themselves as a place to do business, to visit, um, and this serves to reinforce that point. I also think, and a lot of people discount this, I also think that they do view this as a legitimate business. I think they wouldn't be spending $2 billion if they didn't think that they could make some sort of money. And their, their time horizons are a lot longer than most. Um, so they are okay with losing money in the short term. Um, but I do think that they believe that they can turn this into a legitimate business. Um, they think they could sell off these franchises um, for hundreds of billion, hundreds of millions of dollars, or maybe even a billion dollars each um, for their 12 franchises, and that's how they're going to recoup their money. If you talk to people who are involved in the uh, Premier Golf League deals um, and talks, um, they are highly skeptical of this. They just think the Saudis are spending way too much money um, and more money, and they don't have enough money coming in to recoup their investment. Um, but I do think that it, it shouldn't be discounted that that the Saudis do believe that they can turn this into a profitable business. Do you think that that's a delusional position? I, uh, <laughs> I think most people that I've talked to think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I uh, the, the people who really know the business side of this, um, just don't think it's possible. Now people are hesitant to completely write off the idea, um, because sports franchises tend to be very lucrative. Um, and they go up in value and uh, they appeal to people who have a lot of money to spend and uh, maybe want to hang around some golfers. Uh, so there might be people willing to shell out money for these franchises. But right now, uh, you know, sports franchises are lucrative because they have lots of money in TV deals. Uh, the, M and the NFL attracts so many people and they have so much TV revenue. And that's really the reason why NFL franchises are worth so much. Uh, there are on YouTube, like, a, you know, not many thousands of people watching these live golf events right now. Um, so something needs to change drastically, uh, I think, in terms of the revenue they're bringing in to, to actually become a viable business. And I think that's unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's that's what I've heard from a lot of people as well. But uh, on the other hand, I don't think I'm smart enough or, or knowledgeable enough about international business in order to say for sure whether these franchises are never going to be worth what the Saudis think they're going to be worth. Uh, because, you know, just imagine like there's a, a eventually maybe a team Japan or a team South Korea that's backed by uh, some massive business in, in one of those countries that could potentially be very valuable. But uh, there there do seem to be quite a few smart people who are, are skeptical, skeptical that that could ever uh, come about. But I, I want to return for a moment to the sports washing question, because what what you described about the uh, Saudi rivalry with the UAE and the intention to turn Saudi Arabia into a destination, including a golf destination for wealthy Westerners. That for me aligns with what I've always understood sports washing partially to be. 
And, you know, maybe this ultimately boils down to an uninteresting issue of semantics. What do we call sports washing and what do we not call sports washing? But I think that trying to portray a, a, a nation to the world in a different way is a kind of marketing tactic and does involve some sort of reputation laundering, even if that marketing isn't necessarily targeted at everyone. It's targeted towards someone, in this case, toward wealthy Westerners who are interested in golf and might be, you know, uh, willing to see Saudi Arabia as a place that they could potentially go and spend money. I think of that as, as being sort of what, what most people have described sports washing to be to me. Where do you, do you see an important distinction between what, say, you know, um, Joseph Westfall? was describing as sports washing and and he sort of rejected the idea. I I think that idea is ridiculous. Um, What he thinks of as sports washing, do you think there's an important distinction between that and this kind of, you know, marketing tactic to turn Saudi Arabia into a golf destination? It's an interesting question. And, And I made the point in the piece that you could view this as Joseph Westfall does and a lot of other Saudi watchers that I talked to um, that the idea that this is sports washing is ridiculous. Um, you could view it that way if you view this, you know, this sports washing aim to be to launder the reputation of of MBS and the royal family specifically. Um, I think that another way that you could look at this is this is sports washing of a more familiar type um, that you are taking um, something or some people um, with a reputation that is one thing, and you are using the sport of golf to turn it into something else. Um, I think that there is a fine, you know, there, there is kind of a spectrum of this. Uh, and on one end, there's just, you know, regular marketing and one end there's, you know, the sports washing is just rep- laundering the reputation of, of a, a despot uh, or, or a leader of a country or whatever it might be. But I, I think you could make the case that golf generally in the tour um, has engaged in things like this. There, there are a lot of golfers uh, that are unseemly or do unseemly things. Uh, even kind of the icons that that everyone worships, uh, like Jack Nicklaus, has dodgy parts of his past. He's made some racist statements. Uh, and yet the tour has been very good at using the game of golf and its association with things like character and integrity and charity um, to turn uh, these men who are imperfect and, and just human. You know, it's I, I don't think that they're any worse than, than you or I or, or anyone else, but turning them from flawed humans into these like paragons of character and integrity and like the gentleman uh, that everyone should aspire to. And, and, and because of that, making them ideal vessels to sell like Rolexes and things like that. Um, so I, I think that uh, you could, you could make the case that uh, a lot, lots of things are sports washing. Uh, and then maybe a lot of, uh, you know, what golf does from the business side is, is been sports washing all along. Um, I do think that there is, is a, uh, it's it's uh, maybe a subtle distinction, but an important distinction between laundering, say, MBS's reputation. Um, and MBS, you could point to a lot of actions of his that are really horrible. Um, and laundering the reputation of of even a country that he runs, because that that is you know it is going to have a positive effect on a lot of people if 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 you know there is a thriving economy and lots of opportunities for men and women. I, I think that there's an important distinction to be made there. And, and also, um, I think that laundering the reputation of just one person kind of strikes a lot of people as just like, this is a vanity project. It's pointless. Uh, you know, it's, it's just for this person's ego. 
um, whereas, uh, you know, kind of a broader economic thing can have positive effects on a broader set of people. And and there's an argument that some pro-live people make that live could be part of a project that sees Saudi Arabia, quote unquote, modernize or to kind of root out some of the destructive, uh, destructive practices that many Westerners um, abhor. Now, I, I want to be careful in my language here because, you know, uh, uh, talking about this can sometimes feel like it verges on Islamophobia, right? Uh, where, where we're demonizing uh, a certain people and, and, and saying that, you know, the, the way that these people can redeem themselves is to become more like us. There, there's something icky about that. But it is a line that many people have, have used to support what Liv is doing. Um, including Graham McDowell, who, who made a comment of this sort in London. And so what do you make of that argument that this, you know, could be something that does a service to Saudi Arabia and to the rest of the world? Is that as much bullshit as the gentleman narrative on the PGA tour is? I, I, I was first of all, just, you know, amused by how poorly uh, (laughs) this idea was presented by a lot of golfers like, like Graham McDowell. Um, who in yeah. one breath he, he was he was not ready for it he was not prepared no, for, for no. that at all <laughs> which is amazing because you have you have to anticipate that these are the questions you're going to get uh someone was asked about if they would play for vladimir putin and they just wouldn't answer it you could just say no uh it is, it's never going to become a real choice you know <laughs> you, you could just say no uh and and graham mcdowell who could talk about in one breath the the murder of a journalist um, the brutal murder of a journalist and then say, but you know, if the Saudis want to use golf and help them to improve themselves, great. Uh, I'm happy to, I'm proud to do that. I, I was just kind of, uh, aghast and, uh, and amused in a way by the, the, just how poorly they answered some of these questions. Um, I think yeah. a, a small scale, you could, you could make the argument that golf has been good for regular Saudis. They have uh, women who 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 play at the Saudi stops on the tour on their tour um, uh, talk about it really positively. Um, they're treated very well. Um, they're they're uh, trying to get Saudi women into the game. Um, uh, but I, I think on a grander scale, whether or not live golf existed ever or or you know or didn't. Uh, it's not going to make that big of a difference on the lives of any everyday Saudis. Um, it's it's really, I think it's, this is kind of the, a symptom of the general kind of self-importance um, that a lot of golfers seem to have imbibed or as most uh, throughout the years. It's, it's just golf, you know, it's, it's really not going to make that big of a difference. And I think it's okay to say, you know, your interest in this is, because they're paying you a lot of money and that's understandable. People work for money. And I think people would, would uh, identify with that a little bit more than saying, you know, we're doing this to change the world because it's golf. It's, it's really not going to change the world. All right. I think that's a good place to wrap up, Zach. Uh, your piece again online is called will the Saudis and Donald Trump save golf or wreck it. It's on the New Yorker.com right now. And am I right that it's coming out in the print magazine next in next week's issue? It's this week. Um, so um, if you subscribe, uh, it, it may have reached you already, and it's uh, on newsstands uh, now this week. 
This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Meg Atkins. If you'd like to support the Fried Egg, check out our online store at proshop.thefriedegg.com. We have all sorts of cool stuff in there right now, including headwear and layers for the fall season, and a print shop with beautiful photography of Ballyneal, Bandon Trails, Belvedere, and many other courses with names that do not start with B. Again, you can find all of that and more at proshop.thefriedegg.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.